In 2008, I had a good, hardworking team, but I allowed internal rivalries to fester and didn't establish a clear chain of command until it was too late. Still, we came so close to winning, I vowed that this time we would do things differently. I was determined to have the best data, the most field organizers, the biggest fundraising network, and the deepest political relationships. I was thrilled that Beth Jones, a talented manager working at the White House, agreed to be campaign chief operating officer. To lead our organizing and outreach efforts, I turned to three political pros, Marlon Marshall, Bryn Craig, and Amanda Renteria. I also hired experienced organizers to run the key early states. In addition to Matt Paul in Iowa, there was Mike Vlasich, who had helped reelect my friend, Senator Jean Shaheen in New Hampshire, and led my efforts to beat Trump there in November. Emmy Ruiz, who helped lead us to victory in the Nevada caucus before moving to Colorado for the general and helping us win there, too. And Clay Middleton, a longtime aide to Congressman Jim Clyburn, who helped us win a landslide victory in the South Carolina primary. To infuse the campaign with a spirit of innovation, we got advice from Eric Schmidt, the former CEO of Google, and other top tech leaders and hired engineers from Silicon Valley. Stephanie Hannon, an experienced engineer, became the first woman to serve as chief technology officer on a major presidential campaign. I hired one of President Obama's former aides, Teddy Goff, to handle all things digital, along with my longtime advisor, Katie Dowd, and Jenna Lonenstein from Emily's List. They had a tough job on their hands with a less-than-tech-savvy candidate, but I promised to be a good sport about every Facebook chat, tweet storm, and Snapchat interview they recommended. To make sure we built the most diverse team ever assembled by a presidential campaign, I brought in Bernard Coleman as the first-ever chief diversity officer, made sure women were half the staff, and hired hundreds of people of color, including for senior leadership roles. We put our headquarters in Brooklyn, and the office soon teamed with idealistic, sleep-deprived 20-somethings. It felt like a cross between a tech startup and a college dorm. I've been a part of a lot of campaigns going all the way back to 1968, and this was the most collegial and collaborative I've ever seen. So, how did it go? Well, we didn't win. But I can say with zero equivocation that my team made me enormously proud. They built a fantastic organization in the early states and helped me win the Iowa caucus despite tough demographics, as well as the Nevada caucus and the South Carolina primary. In the general election, they recruited 50,000 more volunteers than the 2012 Obama campaign did and contacted voters 5 million more times. My team absorbed one gut punch after another and never gave up, never turned on one another, and never stopped believing in our cause. That doesn't mean there weren't disagreements and debates over a wide range of questions. Of course there were. It was a campaign, for heaven's sake. But even on the night of our landslide defeat in the New Hampshire primary or during the worst days of the email controversy, nobody buckled. And have I mentioned that we went on to win the national popular vote by nearly three million? It was a terrific group of people. And I'm not just talking about the senior leadership. All the young men and women crowded around desks at headquarters in Brooklyn working impossible hours. All the field organizers who were the heart and soul of the campaign. All the advanced staff who lived out of suitcases for two years organizing and staging events across the country. Volunteers of every age and background. More Americans volunteered more time for the 2016 campaign than for any campaign in U.S. history. My team was full of dedicated people who left families and friends to move someplace new, knock on doors, make phone calls, recruit volunteers, and persuade voters. They worked intensely while juggling relationships, welcoming newborn babies, and handling other family obligations. Two of my young communications aides, Jesse Ferguson and Tyrone Gale, kept working through difficult cancer treatments, never losing their devotion to the campaign or their senses of humor. Some of my favorite moments out on the trail were when a volunteer would come up to me as I shook hands on a rope line after a rally. They'd whisper in my ear about what a great job our local organizer was doing or how welcoming our staff was to people who wanted to help and how their enthusiasm was infectious. That always made my day, 
the fact that so many of these young people have decided to stay in politics and keep up the fight despite our loss makes me very happy and proud. Having said all that, of course the campaign didn't go as planned. I ended up falling into many of the pitfalls I had worried about and tried to avoid from the start. Some of that was my own doing, but a lot of it was due to forces beyond my control. Despite my intention to run like a scrappy challenger, I became the inevitable front-runner before I shook my first hand or gave my first speech just by virtue of sky-high expectations. The controversy over my emails quickly cast a shadow over our efforts and threw us into a defensive crouch from which we never fully recovered. You can hear plenty more about that later in this book. But suffice to say that one boneheaded mistake turned into a campaign-defining and destroying scandal thanks to a toxic mix of partisan opportunism, interagency turf battles, a rash FBI director, my own inability to explain the whole mess in a way people could understand, and media coverage that by its very volume told the voters this was by far the most important issue of the campaign. Most people couldn't explain what it was really all about or how the allegations that I was a threat to national security squared with the support I had from respected military and civilian national security experts, including Republicans and independents. But they understandably came away with the impression I had done a big, bad thing. One result was that right away, I was back in my usual adversarial relationship with the press, clamming up and trying to avoid gotcha interviews at a time when I needed to be reintroducing myself to the country. I watched my approval numbers drop and my disapproval and distrust numbers rise. As my message about all the things I wanted to do as president was blocked or overwhelmed. There were other disappointments as well. In 2008, critics had slammed me for not being accessible to voters and avoiding traditional grip and grin campaigning. This time, they went the other way and ridiculed my intimate listening sessions. Where are the rallies? Why can't she draw a crowd, they'd ask. That enthusiasm question never really went away, even when we drew large crowds. Other than Iowa and Nevada, where we built extensive organizations, I struggled in caucuses just as I had the last time. By their structure and rules, caucuses favor the most committed activists who are willing to spend long hours waiting to be counted. That gave the advantage to the insurgent left-wing candidacy of Bernie Sanders. My advantage came in primaries, which have secret ballots and all-day voting, like a typical election, and much higher turnout. The difference was most clear in Washington State, which held both a caucus and a primary. Bernie won the caucus in March, and I won the primary in May, in which three times as many people voted. Unfortunately, most of the delegates were awarded based on the caucus. Ultimately, none of this mattered much after I built up a large delegate lead in March. What did matter, and had a lasting impact, was that Bernie's presence in the race meant that I had less space and credibility to run the kind of feisty progressive campaign that had helped me win Ohio and Pennsylvania in 2008. One piece of advice that President Obama gave me throughout the campaign was that we needed more message discipline, and he was right. In 1992, Bill relied on James Carville and Paul Begala to help him shape his winning message, and they made sure that everyone in the campaign, including the candidate, stuck to it day after day after day. In 2016, my campaign was blessed with many brilliant strategists, and they helped me develop a message, Stronger Together, that reflected my values and vision and a clear contrast with Trump. It may not have been catchy enough to break through the wall of negative coverage about emails, maybe nothing could, but it was the case I wanted to make. And when voters got a chance to hear from me directly at the convention and in the debates, polls showed they liked what they heard. It's true, though, that we struggled to stay on message. My advisors had to deal with a candidate, me, who often wanted something new to say as opposed to just repeating the same stump speech over and over. In addition, more than in any race I can remember, we were constantly buffeted by events, from the email controversy to WikiLeaks to mass shootings and terrorist attacks. There was no such thing as a normal day, and the press didn't cover normal campaign speeches. 
What they were interested in was a steady diet of conflict and scandal. As a result, when it came to driving a consistent message, we were fighting an uphill battle. Add all this together, and I think you get a picture of a campaign that had both great strengths and real weaknesses. Just like every campaign in history, there are important lessons to learn from what we got right and what we got wrong. But I totally reject the notion that it was an unusually flawed or dysfunctional campaign. That's just wrong. My team battled serious headwinds to win the popular vote, and if not for the dramatic intervention of the FBI director in the final days, I believe that in spite of everything, we would have won the White House. I've been criticized harshly by political pundits for saying that, and even some of my supporters have said they agree with me, but I shouldn't say it. If you feel this way, I hope you'll keep going and give my response a fair hearing. Since the election, I've asked myself many times if I learned the wrong lessons from 2008. Was I fighting the previous war when I should have been focused on how much our politics had changed? Much has been made about my campaign's supposed over-reliance on Obama-style big data at the expense of more traditional political gut instinct and trusting folks on the ground. This is another criticism I reject. It's true that some of our models were off, just like everyone else's, including the media, the Trump campaign, everyone. Probably because some Trump supporters refused to talk to pollsters or weren't honest about their preferences or because people changed their minds. It's also true that like any large organization, we could have done a better job listening to the anecdotal feedback we were getting from folks on the ground. It's not like we didn't try. My team was constantly in touch with local leaders, and I had trusted friends reporting back to me from all over the country, including a big group of Arkansans, the Arkansas Travelers, who fanned out in nearly every state. I believe they helped us win the razor-close Missouri primary, and they were a constant source of information and perspective for me. But every precinct leader and party chair in the country wants more attention and resources. Sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong. You can't make those decisions blind. You have to be guided by the best data available. This isn't an either-or choice. You need both data and good old-fashioned political instinct. I'm convinced that the answer for Democrats going forward is not to abandon data, but to obtain better data. Use it more effectively, question every assumption, and keep adapting. And we need to listen carefully to what people are telling you and try to assess that, too. Still, in terms of fighting the previous war, I think it's fair to say that I didn't realize how quickly the ground was shifting under all our feet. This was the first election where the Supreme Court's disastrous 2010 Citizens United decision allowing unlimited political donations was in full force, but the Voting Rights Act of 1965 wasn't because of another terrible decision by the court in 2013. I was running a traditional presidential campaign with carefully thought-out policies and painstakingly built coalitions, while Trump was running a reality TV show that expertly and relentlessly stoked Americans' anger and resentment. I was giving speeches laying out how to solve the country's problems. He was ranting on Twitter. Democrats were playing by the rules and trying too hard not to offend the press. Republicans were chucking the rule book out the window and working the refs as hard as they could. I may have won millions more votes, but he's the one sitting in the Oval Office. Both the promise and the perils of my campaign came together on a warm and brilliantly sunny June day in 2015, when I formally announced my candidacy in a speech to thousands of supporters on Roosevelt Island in New York's East River. Now the event seems almost like a quaint throwback to an earlier era of politics, a time when policies and polish were assets, not liabilities. Nonetheless, that hopeful, joyous day on Roosevelt Island will always rank as one of my favorites. For weeks before the speech, I went back and forth with my team about what to say and how to say it. I've never been very adept at summing up my entire life story, worldview, and agenda in pithy soundbites. I was also acutely aware that as the first woman to be a credible candidate for president, 
I looked and sounded different than any presidential candidate in our country's history. I had no precedent to follow, and voters had no historical frame of reference to draw upon. It was exhilarating to enter uncharted territory, but uncharted, by definition, means uncertain. If I felt that way, I was sure that a lot of voters would feel even more wary about it. I also knew that despite being the first woman to have a serious chance at the White House, I was unlikely to be seen as a transformative, revolutionary figure. I had been on the national stage too long for that, and my temperament was too even-keeled. Instead, I hoped that my candidacy, and if things worked out, my presidency, would be viewed as the next chapter in the long progressive struggle to make the country fairer, freer, and stronger, and to beat back a seriously scary right-wing agenda. This framing took me directly into the politically dangerous territory of seeking a so-called third term after Obama, and being seen as the candidate of continuity instead of change. But it was honest. And I thought placing my candidacy in the grand tradition of my progressive forebears would help voters accept and embrace the unprecedented nature of my campaign. So when Huma suggested launching the campaign on Roosevelt Island named after Franklin Delano, I knew it was the right choice. I'm something of a Roosevelt buff. First on the list will always be Eleanor. She was a crusading first lady and progressive activist who never stopped speaking her mind and didn't give a damn what people thought. I returned to her aphorisms again and again. If I feel depressed, I go to work. A woman is like a teabag. You never know how strong she is until she's in hot water. There was a minor Washington tempest back in the 1990s when a newspaper claimed I was having seances in the White House to commune directly with Eleanor's spirit. I wasn't, though it would have been nice to talk to her now and then. I'm also fascinated by Eleanor's husband, Franklin, and her uncle, Teddy. I was riveted by Ken Burns' seven-part documentary about all three Roosevelts that aired on PBS in 2014. I was particularly struck by the parallels between what Teddy faced as president in the early years of the 20th century as the Industrial Revolution upended American society and what we faced in the early years of the 21st century. In both eras, disruptive technological change, massive income inequality, and excessive corporate power created a social and political crisis. Teddy responded by breaking up powerful monopolies, passing laws to protect working people, and safeguarding the environment. He may have been a Republican, but he put the capital P in progressive. He was also a shrewd politician who managed to fend off the demands of angry populists on his left who wanted to go even further towards socialism and conservatives on his right who would have let the robber barons amass even more wealth and power. Teddy found the right balance and called it the square deal. I love that phrase. And the more I thought about the challenges facing America in the years following the financial crisis of 2008-2009, the more I felt that what we needed was another square deal. We needed to regain our balance, take on the forces that had crashed our economy, and protect hardworking families shortchanged by automation, globalization, and inequality. We needed the political skill to restrain unchecked greed while diffusing the most destructive impulses of resurgent populism. On tough days out on the road, when reading the news felt like getting your teeth kicked in, I'd remember what Teddy said about those of us who climb into the arena. It is not the critic who counts, he said, but the competitor, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes short again and again, because there is no effort without error and shortcoming, but who does actually strive to do the deeds, who at the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly. I also was inspired by Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal program of the 1930s, which saved capitalism from itself following the Great Depression and by his vision of a humane, progressive, internationalist America. Four Freedoms Park at the tree-lined tip of Roosevelt Island commemorates the universal freedoms FDR proclaimed during World War II, 
freedom of speech and worship, freedom from want and fear. It's a picturesque spot with a striking view of the New York skyline. Announcing my candidacy there felt right. The final few days were a flurry of marking up drafts and rewriting lines with Dan Schwerin, my longtime speechwriter who had been with me since the Senate. As the campaign went on, he would be joined by Megan Rooney, a wonderful writer who spent four years traveling the world with me at state and then went to the White House to write for President Obama. Despite our best efforts, when the morning of June 13th dawned, I was still not quite satisfied. I turned to the bottom of page four, the key moment in the speech when I was supposed to say, that's why I'm running for president. What followed to make our economy work for you and for every American was true and important. It was the result of deliberation and debate with my senior advisors, culminating a few days before around the table in my dining room in Washington. I had put down a draft in frustration, declared myself finished with all the slogans and sound bites, and said that I was really running for president to make the economy work for everyone, and why didn't we just say that and be done with it? But something was missing, emotional lift, a sense that we were setting out on a common mission to secure our shared destiny. I remembered a note that Dan and I had received a few days earlier from Jim Kennedy, a great friend who has a deft way with words. He reflected on a line from Roosevelt's Four Freedom speech. Our strength is our unity of purpose. America is a family, Jim noted, and we should have one another's backs. In that moment, I had no idea that the election would turn into a contest between the divisiveness of Donald Trump and my vision of an America that's stronger together. But it felt right to call for shared purpose, to remind Americans that there is much more that unites us than divides us. I picked up my ballpoint pen and, playing off Jim's language, wrote, We Americans may differ, bicker, stumble, and fall, but we are at our best when we pick each other up, when we have each other's back. Like any family, our American family is strongest when we cherish what we have in common and fight back against those who would drive us apart. A few hours later, I was standing at the podium in the blinding sun, looking out at the excited faces of cheering supporters. I saw little kids perched on their parents' shoulders. Friends smiled up at me from the front row. Bill, Chelsea, and Mark were glowing with pride and love. The stage was shaped like our campaign logo, a big blue H with a red arrow cutting across the middle. All around it, a sea of people clapped, hollered, and waved American flags. I allowed myself a moment to think. This is really happening. I am going to run for president, and I am going to win. Then I started to speak. It was hard to read the teleprompter with the sun in my eyes, but I knew the words well by this point. It was a long speech, full of policies and insights developed over the previous months of listening to people such as Pam in New Hampshire. That's not everyone's cup of tea, but I thought it was the kind of speech a candidate for the most important job in the world ought to give. Serious, substantive, honest about the challenges ahead, and hopeful about our ability to meet them. I told a couple jokes. I may not be the youngest candidate in this race, I said, but I will be the youngest woman president in the history of the United States. Little did I know that, in fact, I would end up being the youngest candidate, running against septuagenarians Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump. I was pleased with how the speech was received. The journalist John Allen, who has followed me over the years, declared, Clinton pretty much nailed the vision thing. Jared Bernstein, Joe Biden's former top economic advisor, smartly described it as a reconnection agenda. I loved that. That aimed to reunite economic growth with the prosperity of middle and low-income families. But it was E.J. Dion, one of my favorite political commentators, who had the most thought-provoking and, in retrospect, haunting reaction. Hillary Clinton is making a bet and issuing a challenge. The bet is that voters will pay more attention to what she can do for them than to what her opponents will say about her, E.J. wrote. 
the challenges to her Republican adversaries. Can they go beyond low-tax, anti-government bromides to make credible counteroffers to the nurses, truckers, factory workers, and food servers whom Clinton made the heroes of her Roosevelt Island narrative about grace under pressure? We know now that I lost that bet, not because a Republican came along and made a more credible counteroffer to middle-class voters, but because Donald Trump did something else, appeal to the ugliest impulses of our national character. He also made false promises about being on the side of working people. As Michael Bloomberg later said at the Democratic National Convention, I'm a New Yorker, and I know a con when I see one. Me too. As I would often do in big moments over the course of the campaign, I close the speech by talking about my mother, Dorothy, who passed away in 2011. She lived to be 92 years old, and I often thought about all the progress she witnessed over the course of her long life. Progress won because generations of Americans kept fighting for what they knew to be right. I wish my mother could have been with us longer, I said. I wish she could have seen Chelsea become a mother herself. I wish she could have met Charlotte. I wish she could have seen the America we're going to build together. I looked out at the crowd and up at the New York skyline across the water, smiled, and said, An America where a father can tell his daughter, Yes, you can be anything you want to be, even President of the United States. Time is the coin of your life. You spend it. Do not allow others to spend it for you. Carl Sandburg. A Day in the Life A presidential campaign is a marathon run at the pace of a sprint. Every day, every hour, every moment counts. But there are so many days, nearly 600 in the case of the 2015-2016 campaign, that you have to be careful not to burn out before hitting the finish line. President Obama drilled this point home when I was getting ready to run. He reminded me that when we faced off in 2008, we would often end up staying at the same hotel in Iowa or New Hampshire. He said his team would be finished with dinner and getting ready to call it a night when we finally got there, completely spent. By the time he woke up the next morning, we'd be long gone. In short, he thought we overdid it. Hillary, he said, you've got to pace yourself this time. Work smart, not just hard. Whenever we saw each other, he'd say it again, and he'd tell John and Huma to remind me. I tried to follow his advice. After all, he won twice. My approach came down to two words, routine and joy. At the beginning, I put some routines in place to keep my traveling team and me as healthy and productive as possible through one of the hardest things any of us would ever do. And we all tried our best to savor every moment that came our way, to find joy and meaning in the daily grind of campaigning. Not a day went by when we didn't. Since the election, my life and routine have changed greatly, but I still treasure many moments from that long and sometimes strange trip. Many mental snapshots that I took along the way are in this chapter. So are a lot of details about a typical day on the trail, what I ate, who did my hair and makeup, what my mornings were like. It may seem strange, but I get asked about these things constantly. Philippe Rhinus, my longtime advisor who played Trump in our debate prep sessions, has my favorite explanation why. He calls it the panda principle. Pandas just live their lives. They eat bamboo. They play with their kids. But for some reason, people love watching pandas, hoping for something, anything to happen. When that one baby panda sneezed, the video became a viral sensation. Under Philippe's theory, I'm like a panda. A lot of people just want to see how I live. And I do love spending time with my family and getting some sun, just like a panda. And while I'm not into bamboo, I like to eat. I get it. We want to know our leaders, and part of that is hearing about Ronald Reagan's jelly bean habit and Madeleine Albright's pin collection. In that spirit, 
If you've ever wondered what a day in the life of a presidential candidate is like, or if you've ever asked yourself, does Hillary Clinton just eat lunch like a normal person? This is for you. 6 a.m., I wake up, sometimes hitting the snooze button to steal a few more minutes. Snoozing leaves you more tired. There are studies on this. But in that moment, it seems like such a great idea. As often as we can, we arrange my schedule so I can sleep in my own bed in Chappaqua. Many nights, that isn't possible, and I wake up in a hotel room somewhere. That's okay. I can sleep anywhere. It's not unusual for me to sleep through a bumpy plane landing. But waking up at home is the best. Bill and I bought our home in 1999 because we loved the bedroom. It's one and a half stories high with a vaulted ceiling and windows on three sides. When we first saw it as prospective homebuyers, Bill said that we would always wake up happy here, with the light streaming in and the view of the garden around us. He was right. There's a colorful portrait of Chelsea in her late teens on one wall of our bedroom and photos of family and friends scattered everywhere. We love the wallpaper in our bedroom in the White House, yellow with pastel flowers, so I tracked it down for this bedroom, too. There are stacks of books on our bedside tables that we are reading or hoping to read soon. For years, we've been keeping careful track of everything we read. Plus, Bill being Bill, he has a rating system. The best books get three stars. After waking up, I check my email and read my morning devotional from Reverend Bill Shalady which is usually waiting in my inbox. I spend a few minutes in contemplation organizing my thoughts and setting my priorities for the day. Then it's time for breakfast. When I'm home, I head downstairs. On the road, I order room service. It's hard to plan exactly what or when I'll be eating over the course of the day, since we're always on the go, so breakfast is key. Usually, I opt for scrambled egg whites with vegetables. When they're around... I add fresh jalapenos. Otherwise, it's salsa and hot sauce. I'm a black coffee and strong black tea person, and I drink a huge glass of water in the morning and keep drinking water all day long, since I fly a lot, which can be dehydrating. Over breakfast, I start reading the stack of press clips and briefing papers that have arrived overnight from my staff. If I'm home, Oscar Flores, a Navy veteran who had worked in the White House and is now our residence manager, prints it all out for me. I also take another look at the day's schedule, which is a logistical masterpiece. My team, Lona Valmoro, my invaluable scheduler since my Senate days, who also worked with me at the State Department, Alex Hornbrook, director of scheduling, who previously did the same job for Vice President Biden, and Jason Chung, director of advance, are miracle workers. They juggle dates and places with grace and create flawless events out of thin air. It isn't unusual to call them from the plane as we are landing at night to say, we need to completely redo tomorrow's schedule to add one more state and two more events. Their answer is always, no problem. If Bill's in town, he's probably still asleep. He's a night owl. I'm an early bird. But sometimes he'll get up with me and we'll read the papers. We get four. The New York Times, the New York Daily News, the New York Post, and the Journal News, our local paper, and drink our coffee and talk about what we have going on that day. It's probably a lot like what's happening at that moment in our neighbors' houses, except in our case, one of us is running for president and the other one used to be president. I try to find time for yoga or a strength and cardio workout. At home, I work out in an old red barn out back that we've converted into a gym and an office for Bill, with space in the converted hayloft for the Secret Service. I'm no match for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, however, who pumps iron and does planks and push-ups two days a week. Her regimen is daunting. Mine is more forgiving. But if she can find the time and energy to exercise regularly, so can I. And you. When I'm on the road, I have a mini-exercise routine I've now done in hotel rooms across America. Then there's hair and makeup. Long ago, in a galaxy far, far away, having my hair and makeup done was a special treat every now and again. But having to do it 
every single day takes the fun out of it. Luckily, I have a glam squad that makes it easy. Two hairdressers have taken great care of me in New York for years. John Barrett, whose full-service salon is in Manhattan, and Santa Nichols, whose cozy salon is just a few minutes from my house in Chappaqua. They're both terrific, though a lot of people were baffled to discover after my emails were made public that I had regular appointments with Santa. When I'm in New York and need help with my makeup, I see Melissa Silver, recommended to me by Vogue's Anna Wintour, after she saw me at an event and knew I needed help. On the campaign trail, I have a traveling team, Isabel Getz and Barbara Lacey. Isabel is French and full of positivity. She doesn't walk so much as bop. She's been doing my hair on and off since the mid-1990s, which means we've been together through a lot of hairstyles. Barbara, like Isabel, is perpetually cheerful. In addition to doing my makeup on the campaign, she does makeup for movies and TV shows such as Veep. I, of course, don't want to be compared to Selena Meyer in any way, shape, or form, but there's no denying Julia Louis-Dreyfus looks fantastic. While they get me ready, I'm usually on the phone or reading my briefings for the day. That hour is valuable, so I occasionally schedule calls with staff to discuss electoral strategy or a new policy. They usually don't mind speaking over the blow dryer. Isabel and Barbara do their best to work around me until they tell me they need me to be still, s'il vous plaît. At the beginning of the campaign, Isabel and Barbara got me ready for the day once a week or so, as well as for big events such as debates. I tried to take care of my own hair and makeup the rest of the time. But photos don't lie, and since I looked better when they were with me, it became an everyday thing. When they travel with me, Isabel and Barbara are always nearby, ready to touch me up before interviews or debates. Every time our plane lands, Isabel rushes forward with hairspray, and Barbara spritzes my face with a vaporizer full of mineral water. The air on planes is so dry, she laments. Then she spritzes everyone else in the vicinity, including, at times, the Secret Service. I appreciate their talents and like how they make me look, but I've never gotten used to how much effort it takes just to be a woman in the public eye. I once calculated how many hours I spent having my hair and makeup done during the campaign. It came to about 600 hours, or 25 days. I was so shocked I checked the math twice. I'm not jealous of my male colleagues often, but I am when it comes to how they can just shower, shave, put on a suit, and be ready to go. The few times I've gone out in public without makeup, it's made the news. So I sigh and keep getting back in that chair and dream of a future in which women in the public eye don't need to wear makeup if they don't want to, and no one cares either way. After hair and makeup, it's time to get dressed. When I ran for Senate in 2000 and president in 2008, I basically had a uniform, a simple pantsuit, often black, with a colorful shell underneath. I did this because I like pantsuits. They make me feel professional and ready to go. Plus, they helped me avoid the peril of being photographed up my skirt while sitting on a stage or climbing stairs, both of which happened to me as first lady. After that, I took a cue from one of my childhood heroes, Nancy Drew, who would often do her detective work in sensible trousers. I'm glad I wore pants, she said, in the clue of the tapping heels, after hoisting herself up on the rafters of a building in pursuit of a rare cat. I also thought it would be good to do what male politicians do and wear more or less the same thing every day. As a woman running for president, I liked the visual cue that I was different from the men, but also familiar. A uniform was also an anti-distraction technique. Since there wasn't much to say or report on what I wore, maybe people would focus on what I was saying instead. In 2016, I wanted to dress the same as I did when I wasn't running for president and not overthink it. I was lucky to have something few others do, relationships with American designers who helped me find outfits I could wear from place to place in all climates. Ralph Lauren's team made the white suit I wore to accept the nomination and the red, white, and blue suits I wore to debate Trump three times. 
More than a dozen American designers made T-shirts to support my campaign and even held an event during New York Fashion Week to show them off. Some people like my clothes and some people don't. It goes with the territory. You can't please everybody, so you may as well wear what works for you. That's my theory, anyway. When I leave for several days on the road, I try to be super organized, but inevitably I overpack. I throw in more outfits than I need just in case the weather changes or something spills on me or an eager fan leaves makeup on my shoulder after an exuberant hug. Huma, someone who knows a thing or two about being stylish while working 20-hour days, tries to advise me. She's the one who will tell me I have on two different earrings, which happened a few times. I also overdo it on reading material. For a while, I filled an entire rolling suitcase with briefing memos and policy papers. Oscar helps me load everything into the cars. Sometimes Bill, marveling at all the stuff I'm bringing, asks, Are you running away from home? When the cars are loaded, the husband is hugged, and the dogs are cuddled, we're off. We fly in and out of Westchester County Airport, just a short drive from our house. I make a policy of trying not to be wheels up before 8.30 a.m. on the nights I sleep at home. Everyone on my team has at least an hour's drive home after we land in Westchester, and we often land late. An 8.30 a.m. start time means everyone gets at least some sleep. For the primaries and the beginning of the general election, my traveling team was small. It consisted of Huma, Nick Merrill, trip director Conley Keir, Sierra Koss, Julie Zuckerbrod, and Barbara Kinney, who videotaped and photographed life on the trail, and my Secret Service detail, which was usually two agents, sometimes three. A rotating cast of additional staff joined depending on what was happening that day. Speechwriters, members of the policy team, state organizers. By the end of the campaign, the team was much bigger, and so was the plane. A note about the Secret Service. Bill and I have been under Secret Service protection since 1992, as soon as he secured the Democratic nomination for president. It took some getting used to, but after 25 years, it feels normal. And to their great credit, the agents bend over backward to be as unobtrusive as possible. They are somehow both low-key and ferociously vigilant. The agents are with us at our home all day, every day. When I leave the house to do something casual around town— like go to the market or take a walk, agents come with me. They hang back and give me space to do whatever I'm doing. Sometimes I forget that they're there, which is exactly what they want. I'm grateful for the relationships we've built with many of these dedicated men and women over the years. We've also gotten to spend time with their spouses and children at the holiday party Bill and I host for our agents and their families every year, and I've met some of their extended families out on the campaign trail, too. When Bill and I travel, whether into Manhattan to see a play or all the way to Nevada for campaign events, the Secret Service kicks into higher gear. They coordinate ahead of time to make sure they know the details of every place we'll visit, all the entrances and exits, the fastest traffic routes, and just in case, backup routes and the nearest hospitals. They organize the motorcade, run background checks, and work with local police at every stop. It's an enormous undertaking, and they do it seamlessly. The only part of this I have a hard time with is the size of the motorcade. I understand why it's necessary, but it drives me crazy to see people sitting in traffic that I've caused. This feels especially problematic when I'm campaigning. Shutting down highways seems like the quickest way to make people resent me, which was the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. So I always ask the lead agent to avoid using lights and sirens whenever possible. I'm also embarrassed to admit that I do a fair amount of backseat driving. That's pretty rich coming from someone who hasn't driven a car regularly in 25 years. Luckily, the agents are too polite to tell me to put a sock in it. On a typical day on the trail after leaving the house, our motorcade of two or three cars pulls up right to the plane on the tarmac. Door-to-door -door service is both a security must and an extremely nice perk. For the primaries and the beginning of the general, we flew in planes with nine or ten seats. The traveling press had a plane of their own, which took extra coordination. Eventually, we chartered a Boeing 737 for the general election. 
big enough for all of us, with Stronger Together painted on the side and H logos on the tip of each wing. The plane was our home away from home for months. For the most part, it served us well. Of course, there were occasional hiccups. One day we were in Little Rock and had to get to Dallas. The plane had a mechanical issue, so they sent another one. While we were waiting on the tarmac, my staff got off the plane to stretch their legs. I decided to close my eyes after a grueling few days. I woke up a few hours later and asked, Are we there already? In fact, we hadn't moved. At a certain point in a long campaign, all sense of time and space disappears. Over the course of the campaign, we were joined by a number of flight attendants. They were all excellent, but my favorite was Elizabeth Rivalsi. She's a trained nutritionist and made fresh, delicious food for us in her kitchen in Queens, which she then packed into containers and brought on the plane. Salmon salad, chicken tenders made with almond flour, poblano pepper soup. Her surprise smash hit was brownies made out of chickpea flour. She also had a big basket full of snacks that she regularly replenishes with different items. It was a little adventure every time we boarded and checked out the stash. I have a weakness for Pepperidge Farm goldfish crackers and was delighted to find out that 55 goldfish were only 150 calories. Not bad. One time Liz brought something I hadn't tried before, flavor-blasted goldfish. We passed around the bag and discussed whether it was better than the original. Some of my staff thought yes, which was incorrect. As you can tell, we took eating seriously. Someone once asked us what we talked about on long flights. Food, we chorused. It's funny how much you look forward to the next meal when you're living out of a suitcase. In 2008, we often relied on junk food to see us through. I remember a lot of pizza with sliced jalapenos delivered right to the plane. This time, I was determined that we would all be healthier. I asked friends for good on-the-go snack recommendations. A few days later, shipments of canned salmon as well as Quest and Kind protein bars arrived at my house, which we lugged onto the plane in canvas totes. When the Quest bars got cold, they were too hard to eat, so we sat on them for a few minutes to warm them up with as much dignity as one can muster at such a moment. I also splurge every now and again on burgers and fries and enjoy every bite. Several of us put hot sauce on everything. I've been a fan since 1992 when I became convinced it boosted my immune system, as research now shows that it does. We were always on the lookout for new concoctions. One favorite is called Ninja Squirrel Sriracha. Julie, the videographer, came back from vacation in Belize with four little bottles of the best hot sauce any of us have ever had, Marie Sharp's. We immediately loved the red habanero pepper flavor the most. Everyone quietly jockeyed for that bottle, then handed it over sheepishly when confronted. Eventually, we realized we could just order more, and peace returned. Then there was the food we ate all over the country. We had a few favorite spots, a Middle Eastern takeout place in Detroit, a Cuban restaurant by the airport in Miami, lattes made with honey and lavender from a bakery in Des Moines. At the Iowa State Fair in the 100-degree August heat, I drank about a gallon of lemonade. Nick handed me a pork chop on a stick, which I devoured. When we got back to the plane, I told him, I want you to know that I did not eat that pork chop on a stick because it is politically necessary. I ate that pork chop on a stick because it was delicious. He just nodded wordlessly and kept eating his own state fair discovery, red velvet funnel cake. One hot night in Omaha, Nebraska, I was consumed with the desire for an ice cream bar, the simple kind, just vanilla ice cream with a chocolate shell. Connolly called an advanced staffer who kindly picked some up from the drugstore and met us at the plane on our way out of town. We said thank you and devoured them before they could melt. One of my favorite places to eat and drink is the hotel at Kirkwood Center in Cedar Rapids, Iowa. It's run by hospitality and culinary students from Kirkwood Community College, and they do a great job. 
On one of our first visits, I ordered a vodka martini with olives as cold as they could make it. Cecile Richards, the indomitable leader of Planned Parenthood and a Texan, was with me, and she insisted I try it with Tito's Handmade Vodka, the pride of Austin. It was a great drink. After that, whenever we stay at Kirkwood, the waiter sends over an ice-cold Tito's martini with olives without me even having to order it. We take birthdays and holidays seriously on the road. We put up decorations on board for Halloween and Christmas, and there's always a supply of birthday cakes on hand. We can't light candles, no fire allowed on the plane, so we tell the birthday boy or girl to pretend that they're lit and make a wish. We even found an iPhone app that simulates a lighter to take the game further, which we also use to light the menorah we had on board during Hanukkah. I am famously hard to surprise on my birthday, but for 2016, my team managed to sneak a cake into my hotel suite in Miami and gather silently in the living room while I was on the phone in the bedroom. When I walked out, they both startled and delighted me with an enthusiastic rendition of Happy Birthday and a chocolate cake with turquoise frosting. Since it was still early in the morning, we brought the cake with us on the plane to eat later. The night before, we had all celebrated together with an Adele concert. Perfect. My team and I lived a lot of life together during our year and a half on the road. Families changed. Babies were born. Beloved friends and family passed away. Some people got engaged. Some got separated. We raised a glass when Lorella Pirelli, our director of Latino outreach, took the oath to become an American citizen. Several of us traveled to New Haven, Connecticut, a few weeks after the campaign began to hit the dance floor at Jake Sullivan's wedding to Maggie Goodlander. We were often away from home, under the gun, pushing ourselves as hard as we could to win. As a result, we relied on one another. We came to know one another's habits and preferences. We'd often gather in my room in the evenings to order room service and talk about that day's news coverage or go over the next day's schedule. We watched the Olympics together and the Republican debates, both inspired yelling, though of different kinds. We could be impatient with one another, frustrated, exhausted, demoralized, but we also made one another laugh, broke hard news gently, kept our wits about us, and always stayed focused on the road ahead. It was grueling. Sometimes it wasn't fun at all, but it was also wonderful. Every day on the trail was packed with events, rallies, roundtables, interviews, fundraisers, OTRs, off-the-records or unannounced visits to shops, parks, libraries, schools, hospitals, really anywhere. When we landed in a city, we'd jump from event to event. Sometimes our drive time would stretch to an hour or more. To make the most of it, we would schedule radio interviews back-to-back. -back. I'd also FaceTime with Charlotte, who was now old enough to kind of have a conversation with me. I'd cheer as she spun around in her tutu. We'd sing songs together. Then I'd blow kisses, hang up, and head off to another event. Rallies are a whole other world. It's thrilling to hear a crowd cheer for you. It's thrilling to hear them cheer for your ideas. But I'll admit that no matter how many times I've stood before large crowds, it's always a little daunting. Our rallies were diverse, boisterous, and happy the kind of place you could bring your hundred-year-old mother or your one-year-old son. I loved seeing all the homemade posters kids would wave while smiling ear to ear. One of the best things about our campaign logo, the H with the arrow, was that anyone can draw it, even little kids. We wanted children to spread out poster boards on their kitchen tables, grab markers and glitter pens, and go to town. They sent a lot of homemade H art, to our campaign headquarters. We covered the walls with it. For the music at our rallies, we chose a lot of empowering women artists. Sarah Bareilles, Andra Day, Jennifer Lopez, Katy Perry, and Rachel Platten, as well as songs from Mark Anthony, Stevie Wonder, Pharrell Williams, and John Legend and The Roots. We love to see our crowds singing along to the music. To this day, I can't hear fight song, roar, or rise up without getting emotional. Some people came to our rallies again and again. 
I got to know a few of them. A woman named Janelle came with her husband and daughter to a rally in Iowa headlined by Katy Perry, the first of many she did for me. Janelle had a homemade sign, 13th chemo yesterday, three more, hear me roar. She was in the process of fighting breast cancer. I was with Bill and we walked over to introduce ourselves. We had a nice long talk. Over the next 11 months, I saw her many times. She'd visit me on the trail, update me on her health, and her daughter would tell me how second grade was going. Janelle kept promising me that she'd see me at my inauguration. I kept telling her I'd hold her to it and she'd better be there. For my second debate against Trump in St. Louis, I invited her to come as my guest. My staff would bring groups of people backstage to meet me before I spoke, and those brief conversations were often very meaningful. I met a lot of women in their 80s and 90s who said how excited they were to finally vote for a woman for president. Many dressed up in pantsuits and pearls for the occasion. I imagined myself in 30 years putting on nice clothes and going to hear my candidate speak. One, Ruleen Steininger, even caucused for me in Iowa when she was 102 years old. She made it very clear that she was going to be around to vote for me on Election Day, and she was. At an event at a large arena in New Hampshire, I stepped into a side room before going out to speak and met a group of public school employees. One of them, a man named Keith, who worked in a school library, told me his story. Keith was his mother's caregiver. She had Alzheimer's disease. He couldn't afford adult daycare or a home health aide, so he had to bring his mom with him to work every day. That stopped me in my tracks. He got a little choked up talking to me, and I got a little choked up hearing it. I thanked him for sharing his story. Later, I told my policy staff, who were already working on plans for Alzheimer's research and elder care, to think even bigger. On the rope lines at rallies, I encountered a feature of modern campaigning that has become far more prevalent since 2008, the selfie. There is no stopping the selfie. This is now how we mark a moment together. And to be clear, if you see me in the world and want a selfie and I'm not on the phone or racing to get somewhere, I'll be glad to take one with you. But I think selfies come at a cost. Let's talk instead. Do you have something to share? I want to hear it. Provided it's not deeply insulting, I have limits. I'd love to know your name and where you're from and how things are going with you. That feels real to me. A selfie is so impersonal, although it does give your wrist a break from autographs, now obsolete. Roundtable events were special. As I mentioned earlier, they gave me a chance to hear directly from people in a setting in which they felt comfortable. Sometimes those conversations were searing. I met a 10-year-old girl in Las Vegas who took a deep breath and described in a trembling voice how terrified she was of her parents being deported because they were undocumented. Everyone in that room wanted to give her a hug, but I was the lucky one. She came over and sat on my lap as I said what I'd say to Chelsea whenever she was anxious as a little girl. Don't you worry. Let me do the worrying for you. And also, you are very brave. We tried to make time for OTRs, seeing local sites and dropping by local businesses whenever we could. If we were running late, these would be the first to fall off the schedule, all the more reason not to announce them so no one would be disappointed if we couldn't make it. My personal preference for an OTR was anywhere that sold kids toys, clothes, or books. I would load up on gear for my grandchildren and the new babies of friends and staffers. I also picked up little presents for Bill on the road. Ties, shirts, cufflinks, a watch. He loves nothing more than to get something neat from a craftsman somewhere in America. It's just about his favorite thing. For me, fundraisers were a little more complicated than other campaign events. Even after all these years, it's hard for me to ask for other people's money. It's hard to ask someone to host an event for you in their home or business. But until the day comes that campaign finance reform is signed into law and upheld by the Supreme Court, 
If you want to run a viable national campaign, there's no way around it. You're going to have to do some serious fundraising online, by phone, by mail, and in person. I reject the idea that it's impossible to do it while maintaining your integrity and independence. Bernie Sanders attacked me for raising money from people who worked in finance. But I reminded him that President Obama had raised more money from Wall Street than anyone in history, and that didn't stop him from imposing tough new rules to curb risk and prevent future financial crashes. I would have done the same, and my donors knew it. I was grateful to everyone who gave money to our campaign or helped raise it. We tried hard to use every penny wisely. The campaign staff will attest that Robbie Mook in particular was downright stingy about travel expenses and office supplies. Snack budget? Absolutely not. Buy your own chips. Your own hotel room? Not a chance. Find a roommate. And while you're at it, take the bus instead of the train. We were all of this together. Our fundraising team worked around the clock. Our national campaign staff living and working on a tight budget. Me flying around the country going to fundraisers and our donors opening their wallets to show their solidarity and support. Our campaign had more than 3 million donors. The average donation was under $100, and ours was the first campaign in history for which the majority of donors were women. That meant a lot to all of us. Sometimes we just needed to have some fun. One beautiful summer evening, Jimmy and Jane Buffett hosted a concert for us at their home in the Hamptons on Long Island. I was the first presidential candidate Jimmy ever endorsed, and he wanted to do something special for me. So he, John Bon Jovi, and Paul McCartney played a set in a tent full of twinkly lights, and everyone danced on the lawn under the stars. It was magical. But my favorite events were with kids. They'd sit cross-legged in front of me on the floor, or join me on a couch, or drape themselves over chairs, and I'd answer their questions. What's your favorite part about running for president? Meeting kids like you. Who's your favorite president? With lots of love to Bill and President Obama, it's Abraham Lincoln. What are you going to do to protect the planet? Reduce our carbon footprint, invest in clean energy, protect wildlife, and fight pollution. The children listened with great seriousness and asked follow-ups. They were my kind of crowd. They also sometimes told me what was worrying them. For instance, the death of a pet or a grandparent's illness. Many kids asked what I would do about bullying, which made me want to become president even more. I had an initiative called Better Than Bullying ready to go. I had a lot of respect for the press corps who traveled with us. For the most part, it was comprised of embeds, journalists permanently embedded with us from the beginning of the campaign till the end. That meant they got to know us and we got to know them. A lot of the embeds were journalists in their late 20s and early 30s, which made this assignment a big opportunity for them. They worked as long and hard as we did. Some veteran reporters also joined us for stretches. Network anchors and big-time columnists would parachute in for interviews and a taste of the road, but they never stayed long. The traveling press corps asked tough questions. They were hungry. I had to admire that. With rare exceptions, they were also very professional. I can't say we were completely comfortable with one another, though. As I write elsewhere in this book, I tend to treat journalists with caution, and I often feel like they focus too much on the wrong things. I understand that political coverage has to be about the horse race, but it's become almost entirely about that and not about the issues that matter most to our country and to people's lives. That's something that has gotten increasingly worse over the years. That's not entirely the press's fault. The way we consume news has changed, which makes getting clicks all important, which in turn encourages sensationalism. Still, they're responsible for their part. Having said that, I respected them. Once in a while, we'd go out for drinks or dinner as a group and have a wide-ranging, off-the-record talk. I'd bring Halloween candy and birthday cake back to their cabin on the plane. 
They'd sometimes roll oranges with questions written in Sharpie up the aisle and try to reach my seat all the way in front. Sometimes on night flights, we'd put on music and open the wine and beer. When any of them were sick or dealing with family problems, that happens during a long campaign, I'd ask Nick to keep me updated. Some of the journalists also started dating one another, and that also happens during a long campaign. And since nothing makes me happier than playing matchmaker, I was always eager for the scoop. I also was delighted that many of the journalists assigned to our campaign were women. During the 1972 presidential campaign, the reporters who traveled with the candidates were called the boys on the bus. By 2016, it was the girls on the plane.